because you never know what's going on. And it could lead to something very big. Well, my name is Ward Albin. I'm uh, a ADP security integrator. And I've been here a little over 34 years. And a lot of things that we do here in, in the Skunk Works from a security perspective are uh, oftentimes uh, unique. We've done a lot of firsts here. Some of you may have wondered how Skunk Works releases information to the public. Well, Ward Albin is a huge part of that process. In fact, this entire podcast series goes through Ward before you ever hear it. Ward began working at Lockheed in 1984, and the scope of his job grew over the years. From implementing security precautions to investigating potential spies, all of which has to be done quietly. We've all heard of the quick, quiet, quality mantra, and the central part is quiet, so, so security is vital to what we do. If it wasn't for security, then I don't think there would be a skunk works. We have a, a whole host of projects and programs that we've conducted over the years I've been here and, and years before I got here that uh, to this day are still classified archives that have never seen uh, the light. When I arrived at the Skunk Works, Skunk Works was undergoing a tremendous growth back then. We had the F-117 production line in full swing. We had TR-1s, our U-2s we were building. We had reopened the line. And we had the Sea Shadow. And we had a number of equally uh, exciting programs that I can't discuss. We're all going on at the same time. Our job, uh, first and foremost, is education, trying to educate our employees into being aware of these things. And then, and then second is, is more of an active uh, measures. Uh, if we determine that there might be something going on, then we have to address those things right away. And how we address those things are, are kind of the security craft that we don't discuss much. You know, uh, understand, here's the skunk works right in the middle of Burbank, which was, you know, basically in the middle of Los Angeles. How do you have a production that big and keep that quiet without it drawing a lot of attention to, gee, there's a lot of people going into this building. There's a lot of cars around this area. There's a lot of particular sorts of crates arriving at entrances to these uh, buildings. You know, how do you, how do you hide that? We've done things over the years like break up parts and do it in such a way that it doesn't draw attention and then disperse those parts to different vendors and, and suppliers that actually produce these things and assemble them uh, in their sub-assemblies and then, and then their final assembly, you can do that inside a classified area. Ward was often responsible for transporting secret material. These transportations required two people stay with the material at a time and a cover story was created to justify the transport. Sometimes this was just a simple day drive, but other times it required a flight across the country. I was involved in, a, in an aircraft mishap while landing at a small uh, airport in Durango, Colorado in the later 80s. I was the courier accompanying a, a plane full of TS materials headed for the East Coast and a mechanical problem had developed that caused us to slide off the runway, and we ended up in a drainage ditch as we were landing at this airport. 
we were flying one of our uh, Lockheed King Air B. 200s that had a big cargo door on the side, so we often use that to load it up with classified material and then fly it to a test location. And it was uh, really, really easy to do those things back then. So we ended up in the drainage ditch, and you know we were uh, shaken up, uh, a little bruised. We were largely unhurt. Our plane had had a bent prop and uh, damaged a wing. It was interesting, as we climbed out of the uh, airplane and out of the ditch, we were shortly met uh, later with the volunteer fire department at the airport there and uh, the local sheriff. And so as we're climbing out, trying to figure out, well, what do we do next? The sheriff uh, started to ask a lot of questions. And uh, he was very suspicious of what we were doing. And of course, you know, we had these uh, brown, opaque, wrapped packages along with some crates we found out later that there was, had been a big drug bust with a similar operation with a plane the previous week that had brown, opaque packages similarly wrapped. And there was some other weapons that were uh, apparently that had been confiscated. So what are we shipping? Brown, opaque packages and some crates that looked like they might have had weapons in them. The sheriff, he was about ready to call back up and have us you know, maybe put aside, and then he, he was going to go through these packages himself, according to him. He was going to open them up. So at that point, I had to step in, and I said, look, um, this is who we are. And he says, well, we ran the tail number of your plane, and your story's not matching up with what you guys were saying. So our, our, our cover story was falling apart. So we had to basically say, hey, look, uh, we, we divulged part of what we were doing. I said, look, this is, this is very highly sensitive government material, Here's my credentials to prove who I am. Here's some other things to prove who we are. And uh, please don't arrest us. We're here on a we're here on a mission. <laughs> we just wanted to get refueled, you know, and, and go on our way to the East Coast. So with that, he actually helped us uh, helped us unload the plane. The fire department actually helped us unload uh, TS material under their uh, fire engine, take it over to the fire department. We locked it in their break room. And then I called and arranged for a truck and other rental vehicles to carry the stuff so we could be there Monday morning to meet our test window. So this was a Friday, and we drove all through the weekend to get there on Monday morning to meet our test window. There were some things that happened on that program where we thought parts of what we were doing were compromised. So when we did end up in the ditch, along with the fire department and the local sheriff, we had two or three other uh, people show up and they immediately started taking pictures. They took pictures of the aircraft and methodically went around, took pictures of each one of us, and then they took off. Well, we thought, oh my gosh, who are these guys? And we heard uh, one of the, the pilot or the co-pilot, one of them said they were speaking in a foreign language. And so... Uh, I, I had another security guy with me. I said, you stay with the plane and help the fire department get the TS loaded onto their truck. Let me go find out who these guys are. And the sheriff, once the sheriff understood that we're not a threat, we're not drug runners, uh, I followed the other guys and found out that these guys were Dutch flight students going through flight school there. But they initially, they wouldn't tell me who they were, what they were doing, but they were very excited about the pictures they got. And so... I told the sheriff, you know, uh, after I told him who we were and I told him that these guys had taken pictures, 
he went over and confiscated their cameras and pulled their <laughs> pulled the rolls out of the back of their cameras and exposed it, to, you know, and, and ruined their film and then gave it back to him. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But we said, you know, you, that won't be necessary. Don't please don't do that to anyone else, you know, especially with with our name attached to it, you know. So Employees at Skunkworks are required to report suspicious occurrences, even something relatively minor. The most seemingly innocuous encounters can turn out to have sinister implications. So they were carpooling home one night, and they had to stop suddenly, and they got rear-ended. It was a minor, a very, very, very minor uh, fender bender. There was two guys in the car that rear-ended our two engineers. And so they... They jumped out of the car and were very apologetic. One of them didn't really speak much, but what he did say was kind of broken English. And the other guy was, you could tell he had an accent, but he was a little bit more fluent in English. And uh, they're very apologetic and, oh, my gosh, how could they be so stupid? And uh, they offered our two engineers just uh, they offered the one guy who was the driver. They said, I'm, I'm sorry, um, you know, we're, we're, in, we're late for a meeting. We, we don't have time to exchange information. But here, this should more than cover it. And they handed the one guy an envelope full of cash. It was probably five or six times what it would have cost to get the thing fixed. So the guy just, just he kind of looked in the envelope, uh, saw there was a lot of money there, said, oh, this, this will more than cover it, I'm sure. And just said, okay, you guys, I'm sorry. Yeah, go to your, you know, go to your appointment. But the one en- engineer, the other engineer thought, well, this is kind of odd. He jotted down the license plate. And so... Um, they came back, and uh, the guy had counted the, uh, his envelope full of money that night and realized there's several thousand dollars here. <laughs> this is way beyond what, you know, could have, could have fixed this thing. And so he called his other engineering buddy, and, and uh, his car pulled home. He says, you know, I got this much money. He said, well, I happened to draw, jot down that license plate. We ought, we ought to report this to security. So they did. They came in the next morning and reported it. And so we, we got with our local uh, law enforcement folks, hey, we've got this incident, can you, can you run the plane? Came back to a, a rental agency. And so, well, who rented it? And so one thing led to another, and we found out there was uh, two individuals from one of the uh, diplomatic uh, establishments in LA, can't tell you who, that had followed our two guys. And uh, one, uh, one of the guys they figured out was a known intelligence officer with a foreign adversary and they were following our two engineers home and they had been working on a sensitive project so immediately that that causes concern what do they know how much of the, how long have you been followed you know are there other employees being followed and so there was a lot of changes that we had to do rather abruptly to try to cover what was going on but uh, that caused a lot of concern among that those guys working on that project once they figured out that who, who it was you know, how much do they know about the project? Should we move the, Should we move some things? Should we do some things? So we did, we did a lot of things to try to, try to uh, recover from that. We always look at these things holistically. We look at uh, the person. We look at what they have access to, uh, what they're doing at, at that time and context. Uh, for, for example, we've had concerns where somebody was printing and downloading tremendous amounts of data. Well, immediately you think, well, well, why is that? You know, often it's nothing. 
but uh, in, in, in many cases, it might be somebody working on a proposal. They need a bunch of data, and they need to download it and move it into a, a program space. But if you don't understand what's going on in the plant and what accesses they have and, and their job, uh, you know, it, it might seem you know, nefarious on, on the surface. We had an employee reported to our, our security office that someone had, was potentially concealing uh, paper materials under their garments in the men's restroom. The reporting employee said that they had, had heard a, this un unidentified male in one of the stalls uh, rustling papers and meticulously folding uh, paper. And then what they thought was the, uh, the material then was taped to the persons under, uh, under their garments. But you, know, you got to think about it for context. You know, this was during the time when we had the age of the spy, and so you had uh, a movie that had come out about the same time, uh, the Falcon and the Snowman. And so uh, there was a lot of employees that were very sensitized to that sort of stuff. So when this employee came in, they thought, "Oh my gosh, uh, somebody is taking out classified information and they're taping it under their clothes and then walking out." So we had no idea who it was. We followed the employee back down to the uh, men's restroom and waited for somebody to come out. We didn't know who, who it was. So we had had a couple of teams follow a couple different employees back to the program areas, and then, and then we figured out it was probably a certain person. I won't tell you exactly how we figured that out, but we, and so we summoned that person to the security office. He was an, an older gentleman. Uh, a seasoned engineer and, and a, you know an older guy, but you know I was in my 20s, so everybody was older back then. But uh, uh, this guy was brought in, and uh, my supervisor point blank asked him, "What are you hiding under your clothes?" And the guy just just went pale, and in just shock looked across his face, and I thought, "Oh my God, we have caught a spy in our midst." And then the guy looked kind of embarrassed, and he said, well, it's, um, I work in this other area down here. And he says, it's cold down there. And, and, and he pulls up his pant legs, and he had wrapped that day's Herald Examiner in Los Angeles Times and taped him to his legs. We were working in, in kind of the nerve center of uh, ADP at the time. And so that uh, building had began as a kind of an open base, but it had been over the years sliced and cut up to the point where it was a maze of program areas. Most of the areas were okay. It was comfortable. But you had certain areas we just never could get right. They were either too hot or too cold. This guy worked in the, one of the meat lockers. And, uh, you know, he wasn't one of these guys. A lot of those guys back then, they didn't complain about much. This guy had, as a matter of course, every day, uh, had gone to the restroom, the men's restroom, and uh, had his paper that he picked up every day. After he read it, he would go in and, and uh, wrap it around his legs. And uh, so he, he had wrapped himself in classified ads, not classified information. And so, we, we <laughs> so that was kind of the joke, that he was uh, newsprint pants, you know. He was just cold. <laughs> <laughs> One of the oldest techniques of spycraft is to find human vulnerability and exploit it. Unemployed, deeply in debt, or disgruntled, or who can be compromised are all valued targets. The closer they are to the desired information, the more prized they become. We had a um, incident that happened years ago. 
This was just after the Cold War had been declared over, and there was a lot of activity with foreign adversaries coming to the States, setting up front companies, and reaching out to our employees under a false pretense. And so we unfortunately had uh, an employee who was taken in by a foreign adversary. They used classic techniques, stroking the ego, let that employee know that they weren't appreciated as, as they should be, and if they were working for them, that they would be more appreciated. And then when they would just ask for uh, small things, hey, could you help us with this little problem or that little problem, and you're so smart and you're so wonderful. Gee, you're not appreciated. Just help us with this little problem here. And, and so as the employee helped, they got to a point where they were over the threshold. We had uh, found out early on that there was something amiss and we got our federal law enforcement involved and started working the, the matter early. We're able to prevent some things getting transferred to a, a foreign adversary because we had a, a pretty good counterintelligence program even back then. The, it wasn't formalized as it is today, but we had some good methods and we had some good understanding of what needed to be protected and how to be protected. And so because of that, we were able to uh, thwart that attempt to um, transfer technology and some very sensitive technology to a foreign adversary. Unfortunately, the, the employee is, is no longer employed with us, but stands to reason that uh, we ought to be very aware all the time that uh, we are targets. Over the years, you know, people will learn that they can come and talk to you about matters that they think might be of a security concern. And, and uh, sometimes they are, and often it's not. It's not a big deal. But, but you also are trusted with the uh, secrets of, of people's lives. And so, yeah, that's, it, it can be a burden. Uh, uh, you know, you can't tell your family, you know, anything. But you can, you know, the stuff that you can talk about inside program areas, that's why it's good to have a, maybe a friend that's working with you on the same projects that you can, you can talk back and forth about some of those things. But uh, yeah, my family doesn't really understand the, what, we, what we do here to, to you know, and they, as they shouldn't. I mean, what they should know is what has been released, you know, and, and, and nothing more. But uh, they got a glimpse of uh, that, the fact that I worked on the F-117 when it was fully disclosed and each employee received a, a talking point sheet, if you will, that we could tell our family these things or you can put on your resume or whatever. But for years we couldn't. And and not every program we can. So like I said, some some will remain in obscurity and will never never be disclosed, never be talked about. It, and I would say these programs are as as fascinating and interesting as, as any of the ones you did that you do know about. Yeah. And maybe had uh, achieved some things that are just as special. Inside Skunk Works is produced in Palmdale, California and Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for a bonus story from Ward about his time overseas. And to find out more about Ward and his unusual career in secrecy, check out our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk Works. Because I remained as an OSI uh, reservist, I got activated in 2003 for Operation Iraqi Freedom. I was gone for a year. 
And so uh, my job over there was I was on a small team. Uh, we were an anti-terrorist specialty team. We traveled around. I, I probably had 10,000 ground miles and about 10,000 air miles in, in Black Hawk helicopters and other fixed-wing uh, aircraft over Iraq. Uh, wore civilian clothes the entire time. You try to develop uh, information of what's going on on the ground in an effort to protect, uh, as force, force protection for our forces that are, that are operating over there. You're outside the wire. I lived outside the wire. As you, as you, I wasn't in a, assigned to a garrisoned area where I could go home at night and inside a, a, you know, a base. I was in hotels and uh, people's homes and such. So I, I slept with a gun under my pillow for most of that time and, and had to trust the Peshmerga militia guy that might be guarding the, the hotel lobby or the contractor that we had hired, you know, to watch a safe house or something. So, yeah, we were, we were attacked a few times. But yeah, so, so my kids know about a lot of that sort of stuff, those things I've shared rather freely. 